0: Today, and uh, all over uh, the scriptures, we're also going to hear from um, a lot of old dead guys. A good thing. Um, We've been, as you well know, on these first Sundays of the month, uh, pausing from our study of the book of Matthew to talk about who God is, to talk about his attributes, because, as we have seen, there is nothing more pressing upon the church at any moment than who God is. Because um, to worship Him for anything that He is not is, at very best, idolatry. Um, it's long been said that uh, in the beginning, God created man in His image, and ever since the fall, we have been returning the favor. But if we worship a God who is made in our imaginations, who we think he is like, then we worship a God who will no doubt be like us and lowly like us and sinful like us. And we don't want to do that. And so we are looking to the attributes of God. And as we come to our ninth attribute in this uh, this study, we find ourselves at an attribute that is simultaneously maybe one of the most encouraging or ought to be one of the most encouraging attributes and simultaneously probably the single most offensive attribute of God to our sinful selves. And that is the sovereignty of God. Uh, Sovereignty is a word that simply means, and I'll give you a definition here, God's sovereignty is that attribute of God whereby he rules all things Absolutely. And when things go our way, when they're how we want them to be, when we like our circumstances, it's easy to imagine that God is sovereign. But when things don't go our way, when our spouses die, or our children, when our businesses collapse when we've been praying for our kids for decades to to follow after God and they still do not, uh, it can be really, really hard to understand how God is sovereign in those things. But we come to sovereignty today because of the attributes that we've seen in the past. It is the, the natural outworking of two of the attributes that we have looked at recently, and that is God's omniscience. If you remember, omniscience is the fact that God knows everything, past, present, and future. And if you were here as we talked about God's uh, omniscience, you may have been amazed with me that God does not only know the, the real past and present and future, he knows all possible pasts and all possible futures. That is not to say that he doesn't know specifically the past and the future. And then we came not only to his omniscience, but to his omnipotence, that he is all-powerful. And if we do some kingdom math, which we often do, God's omniscience, that he knows everything, plus his omnipotence, that he has all power to accomplish anything he wants, results in God's sovereignty. That is to say that he rules absolutely over all things. While there may be some attributes of God that are equally as important, um, there is none more important. We've said that his holiness is his prime attribute, that is, in all of his attributes, he is holy. He never sins. He never does what's wrong, not in his sovereignty, not in his justice, not in his mercy, and not in his wrath, which is one we will come to as well, another difficult one. But though it is so important, there probably is no doctrine more offensive to our sinful minds. And as such, there is no no doctrine more fearful for a preacher to preach than that of the sovereignty of God. Because it tells us that we are not in control of anything. Not just we're not in control of some things. The reality is that we're not in control of anything. And God is absolutely in control of everything. And we want control, we want to control our circumstances, our outcomes, our destinies our families. But the reality is, you know what we actually love? We don't actually love control because that belongs to God. What we love is the illusion of control. We love to delude ourselves, that we control things that only God can control. And so I'm going to return uh, to our definition of sovereignty. Let me give you that one more time. The definition of sovereignty is that attribute of God whereby he rules all things absolutely. Uh, A.W. Pink, if you don't know Arthur Pink, you should. He wrote a great little book on the attributes of God. I'm going to quote him a lot today. Uh, A.W. Pink said that God's sovereignty means, here's the quote, that God is God in fact and not just in name. That God is God in fact and not just In name. And the importance of this doctrine is inestimable. It's it's like the, the first domino that when this one goes, all other dominoes in our church and in our theology and in our doctrine go with it because you end up with a God who is not in control. One of the things we'll talk about today is you end up with a God who's trying to work out his purposes. And if we recall our omnis, that God is omnipotent, that he has all power, that he never spends energy to do all things, uh, that, that, that is beyond us. He doesn't sleep or slumber. He does not grow weary, we saw in Isaiah. He does not expend energy as he upholds all things by his His might. We we end up with a God who's trying rather than a God who is controlling. We end up with a God who is attempting to work out his plans rather than a God who is ruling absolutely over all things. And I think, by by the way, uh, this is a really easy thing to diagnose in our lives. Two little words uh, can, can diagnose a problem, uh, the, the problem in a church or in our lives uh, of whether or not we believe that God is sovereign or not. And those two words are if only. If only God could do that. If only God could save that person. Do you know how many wonderful things could happen in the kingdom of God if only God could get a hold of so-and-so? Is that not a God who in our imaginations is trying? A God who can't accomplish his purposes, and so because he cannot get a hold of so-and-so's heart, then, well, these wonderful kingdom things just aren't happening. It's really easy to, to diagnose. But the reality is that God is not subject to the wills of people. And let's say that again God is not subject to the wills of people. We are subject to the will of God. Again, pink. God always does as he pleases, when he pleases, where he pleases, and with whom he pleases. Paul tries to make this very clear for us in Romans 9, a text we're not going to look at today, but he gives several examples when God does things very unusually against human will, against Abraham's will, Uh, Isaac, not Ishmael, was the chosen son. Jacob, not Esau, was the chosen son. And Paul reminds us in Romans 9 that Pharaoh Pharaoh was raised up for the very purpose of God displaying his power through him. And if you follow along in Exodus and you see these these nine or really ten times probably that that Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites go, about half of the time it says Pharaoh hardened his heart and about half of the time it said that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's will was subject to the will of God because God always does as He pleases, when He pleases, where He pleases, with whom He pleases. R.C. Sproul, another guy we'll hear from a few times uh, today, who um, qualifies now as one of the old dead guys, um, said that the doctrine of of the sovereignty of God is God's favorite doctrine, and I think he's right. I think Sproul is right. The fact that God is in control of all things at all times is God's favorite doctrine. And he wants us to understand that as well. Maybe we see this very, very clearly in what's called the enthronement psalms. Uh, if you read through the, the 90s of the Psalms, uh, we see a pattern through these enthronement psalms. In Psalm 93:1, the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. Psalm 96.10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Psalm 97.1, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. It begs the question of us all, is that our response to the truth that the Lord reigns? Do we respond with rejoicing and gladness? Psalm 99.1, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. I think what the psalmists want us to understand in these enthronement psalms is that, wait for it, the Lord reigns. Circumstances don't reign. Politicians don't reign. Supreme courts don't reign, kings don't reign, luck does not reign, chance does not reign, banks do not reign, I do not reign, and maybe most importantly and most offensively, you don't reign either. None of us do. God reigns over all of those things. He reigns over our circumstances. He reigns over governments. He reigns over nations. He reigns over people. He reigns over our wills. He reigns over everything. One of the places we see this most clearly, which brings us to where I had you open to today, the book of Ephesians, uh, is in Ephesians chapter 1. And the question before us is, how far does the rule of God spread I think, I think we see many answers uh, in, in Ephesians 1, and we're going to come back to it and read it over and over and over again. But follow along with me as I read to you Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy holy. And blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. How far does the sovereignty of God spread? It spreads to all things. Do you see maybe some of the struggle in that? When that child doesn't believe, How is that united, that child united to God in all things? When a a government is brutal and dictatorial and murderous, how is that government reconciled to God as one of the all things? It's because God's perfect sovereign plan which he set forth before the world began, before the foundation of the world to redeem a people for himself, that, that plan is going, or, or, or all of those things are going exactly according to plan. Steve Lawson points out in order in verse 11, which I find interesting and uh, kind of unique. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having, pre, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The first thing Steve Lawson points out for us is that God took counsel. At some point in eternity past, God took counsel within the Trinity. To hatch a plan, I think one of the most amazing and unlikely places we see this, you don't have to turn there, is in Paul's uh, greeting in Titus. As he writes to Titus, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life. Now, he's about to tell us something about eternal life. What follows, the the which that follows is a relative pronoun referring back to eternal life. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. That means God promised eternal life before time. Before the ages began, before the world was created, before any matter and energy existed, before God created out of nothing, he made a promise within the Trinity to redeem a people, to offer eternal life. And so first, God within himself took counsel. Second, as a result of that counsel, he set forth a purpose. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose. Of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, and so first God takes counsel, and second He declares a purpose, and third there is predestination, and that is that God made a plan to save. And I know that we don't all understand that word the same, and that's my my goal today is not really to uh, to, to. give a definition of that, but we do see in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so if we go backwards, we see that God took counsel, he set forth a purpose, he predestined a people, and one day, though we have not obtained it yet, we will receive in full the inheritance. And when did he do all of this? Let's go back to verse 4 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before Genesis 1.1, God did all of these things. Now, I've made it clear that uh, my goal is not to try and uh, define the idea of predestination for us, but we've already been confronted with it. So I'll recount a story to you. And that was when I first went off to Bible college. Uh, You know, I had very, very low views of the sovereignty of God. And one of the things that studying God's word will do is force you to have Higher and higher and higher views of God, and particularly his sovereignty and his power and his might and his control. And so. Um, I was struggling with this idea of what does it mean that God chose people? What does it mean that God predestined people? And we are going to come back to that idea briefly. But, um, but I was really, really struggling, as all of us do. And I'm looking at my Bible, and I'm seeing these verses like Ephesians 1, and I don't really know what to do with this stuff. And so um, I had lunch one day with... Um, uh, a guy named a Professor at the school named Dave Needham, and um, sat down with Dave. And I said, uh, "Hey, what do you think of predestination?" And and he uh, he did not take the bait. I don't know that it was actually bait; it was a genuine question. But I, I'm not sure there could have been any answer he gave that I would have liked. And so he didn't answer immediately. Eventually, he looked up at me and he said, "You know, Logan." The word is in your Bible. I suppose you better figure out what it means. And I was like, well, that was not helpful. But you know what it was. Because these words, like chosen and predestined, they're in our Bibles. And so we had better figure out what they mean. But what I want to do today is I want to look at three domains of God's sovereignty three domains of god's sovereignty. We're going to start out very broad and we're going to move in we're going to zoom in closer and closer on ourselves with each one. The first domain of god's sovereignty is creation. The first domain of god's sovereignty is creation. Psalm 33 verses 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in a storehouse. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. He created all things, uh, Psalm 33 tells us, as a display of his glory. I remember there was an old movie a long time ago. It's not worth uh, giving you the plot line for, but it was this like space thing and listening for aliens and all this kind of stuff and a couple of the characters are having a conversation about whether or not anything's out there. You know, and that's maybe a, que- a pressing question before us as we get these whistleblowers who come out and say, hey, the government has aliens. If you haven't been paying attention and if you haven't been reading the fine print, by the way, the same guy said uh, several things. He said, uh, first off, you have to know I've never seen any of them and I don't know what they have and I don't know where it is. So it makes me wonder how uh, informed this whistleblower who's seen nothing and has no information about the things that he has not seen, somehow knows that these things exist. But nonetheless, the question that is being presented to us in our world is, is there something out there? And even if there is, it's not going to change anything about what I believe. It does not threaten my worldview and my beliefs of God's word in the slightest. However, in this movie, the statement was made, you know, if we're the only ones that exist in all of the universe... It seems like an awful waste of space. Can I, can I share with you why it's not a waste of space? Can I share with you why the cosmos is not primarily our home? Psalm 19.1 The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. If the heavens exist not to provide us with a home... But to declare the glory of God, it can probably be described as nothing but too small. Because even the limitless and vast amount of space there is out there, according to our knowledge, is is not enough for us, I mean, it's, it's just not enough to display the perfections of a limitless God. Lawson, Steve Lawson, love this. He says, the universe is not run by a democracy. It's run by a theocracy. The universe is not run by people casting votes. I think I've mentioned this before, but I I used to tell my kids, you know, anytime they'd say, well, let's vote on it. I'd say we were going to do something. They're like, let's vote on it. I said, okay, we can take a vote. But just remember, this household is not a democracy. It's a benevolent dictatorship. The only vote that matters is mine. And that is certainly true of the universe. It is not a democracy. It is a a dictatorship. And we tend to associate negative things to dictators, but God is not a a, a negative, a bad dictator. He is a benevolent dictator. And so God is first sovereign over creation. Secondly, he is sovereign over history. He is sovereign over history. Uh, another word we have for this is providence. And I've shared before, and I'm going to share again, that this, to me, is one of the most amazing things about the sovereignty of God. Because typically, when we talk about so- God's sovereignty, we talk about him declaring things that will be. And that certainly is true. We're going to see that. But God's providence is, is his absolute sovereign control inside the, the exercise of the wills of his people. This is where things get really hard for us. Because how can God both be sovereign and people have wills? And my simple question for you is, or answer for you is, I don't know. I don't know how to reconcile this. But it amazes me. We should understand first and foremost that the exercise of our will does not threaten the sovereignty of God. Again, an analogy that I've shared is if I took my young children out to dinner at a nice restaurant and said, you may choose any meal that costs this much or less, they would have an opportunity to exercise their will over what they chose. But the boundaries of that will would have been set by me. And so therefore, when they make a choice that is within the boundaries that I have set, not a single one of their choices threatens my control. We're going to... We know how children are. They'll certainly make you understand your idea of control as an illusion, but I'm going to use the word anyways. You know, the exercise of their will therein does not deny my authority. It affirms it. And so all of us have the ability to make choices within the boundaries that are set by God. And if I understand Romans correctly, according to our nature. And so uh, we have to understand that the exercise of our will never threatens God's sovereignty. It never threatens God's control. But one of the things we see, and we see this very clearly as I've already spoken of Pharaoh, is that even in the willful choices of Pharaoh, Pharaoh is accomplishing God's plan. And so God's control is not just His control of decree when he says, this is how things are going to be and you have no choice but to do them. It is in every single choice you have ever made in your entire life. The sovereign providential plan of God is being accomplished perfectly. God raised Pharaoh up for this purpose that he might show his might. Psalm 33, we're Continuing in Psalm 33, let's just look at the following verse, the next couple of verses that we've, uh, after what we've already read. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, He frustrates the plans of the people. So we can make plans, and governments can make plans, and God brings them to nothing, and He frustrates the peoples. However, in great contrast to that, verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart, To all generations, God directs all of the participants in his story, in history. John Calvin said that the universe is a theater for the glory of God to be on display. The universe is a theater for the glory of God to be on display. And I love the way Steve Lawson said this. He said, Providence is the hand of God. In the glove of human circumstances. Providence is the hand of God in the glove of human circumstances, God carrying it out. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read Isaiah 46, verse 8, it feels like Isaiah is winding up to punch me in the mouth. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Notice the order there. He declared the end at the beginning. He declared the way things would come to an end from the very beginning of all things. See, unlike this idea that we have sometimes of a, a god playing this cosmic game of chess trying to work out his plans and you know he makes his opening move and then you know satan counters and there's the fall and adam and eve eat and god's like okay well my plans are about to change and remember titus god promised salvation before the foundation of the world see the cross was never plan b the cross has always been plan A. He declared the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, declaring things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. There's that word again. And I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. He's declared the end from the beginning. He isn't maneuvering. Can, can I tell you, uh, if you haven't seen it already, why this is the most encouraging thing you've probably ever heard me say? This, this is a God you can trust to save. This is a God you can trust when He says that He is going to forgive you, redeem you, adopt you, purchase you, glorify you, and grant you an inheritance that is immovable. It is non negotiable. This is so important for us. I'm pretty sure I've shared this analogy as well, but you know, if I, if I, uh, If I promised you a million dollars, you would be foolish to count on that million dollars until I actually gave it to you. Because in the economy of people who don't really have control over things, and the economy of people like me who couldn't give you a million dollars if I wanted to because I don't have a million dollars to give you, until the thing promised is given, there's no certainty. But it's not like that with God. With God, the thing promised is as certain as the actual receiving of that thing. When God says, I will redeem you, he will redeem you. When he says, I will glorify you, he will glorify you. When he says, if you have trusted in my son, you will be welcomed into eternal life forever. He will welcome you into eternal life forever. And when he says that if you have not trusted the life and death and resurrection of his son to pay the consequences for your sin, you will bear the consequences of your sin for an eternity under his punishment, well, then he means that too. Because nothing can stop him. He isn't maneuvering. He isn't trying. He's not figuring out what are his next steps. He is watching history unfold perfectly according to plan. It looks messy from our perspective. That same guy I had lunch with Dave Needham in a uh, prophet's class talking about these very verses, not these exact verses, but you know, we're looking at some of the prophets. He, he said this, made this great analogy, and at the time, Jennifer and I had this tapestry hung on our wall at home. He said, you ever, you ever see the back of a tapestry? There's loose strands going everywhere, and you have no idea what the front of the tapestry looks like. And if you just look at the back, you might think, what a mess. You know, a kindergartner wove that thing. Well, this side of heaven, we're on the back side of the tapestry, and we see strands going from here to there that we can't make sense of, and connections that seem to, to be meaningless. and we're looking at this chaotic picture, and we're going, "Man, what, what is God doing here? But someday, for those of us who have trusted Christ, we'll get to be on the other side of that tapestry. And I imagine when we see what God is weaving throughout our lives, uh, throughout history, we'll be amazed. Will probably be absolutely amazed. It's it's no wonder that the, the saints in Revelation who seem to have an awareness of the things of earth are not saddened by it. Because they get to see what God is weaving throughout history. And so God is sovereign over creation. He is sovereign over history. And thirdly, and maybe most fearfully, God is sovereign over salvation. We are going to have to deal with that in this passage today, and we could look at uh, Romans chapter 9, but that's a huge passage to deal with. I just want us to see one very small thing here in Ephesians, but it's one very big thing, um, because... As many of you know, the Greek language does not work like English. And there's things it does that we can't do. And I try not to make too much of that unless there's something to actually be seen here. But there is something to actually be seen here. So start with me again at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world in order that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through jesus christ according to the purpose of will of his will to the praise of his glorious grace i read the whole passage but what i really want to zoom in on is the word chose in verse 4 it says even as he chose us in him we're going to have to understand a little bit about english Uh, And then we can understand a little bit about Greek. But English has active and passive verbs. Uh, An active verb is where the subject of the sentence does the action. A passive verb is where the subject of the sentence receives the action. So if I were to say something like, Logan hit Dan. Logan's the subject. Dan is the direct object, and and the subject, Logan, did the hitting. But if I wanted to keep myself as the subject, but reverse the nature of the action, I wouldn't use an active verb, I would use a passive verb. I would say, Logan was hit by Dan. Now, Dan's the one doing the hitting, but I remain the subject of the sentence. And so the first example is an active verb. The subject is doing the action. And in the, the second example, it's a passive verb. The subject is receiving the action. Greek has something called a middle voice, where the subject of the sentence does the action to or for or towards themselves. And that's what what Paul chooses to say here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that when God chose us in him, he, he chose us for himself, for his own purposes. In fact, usually middles are done when the subject of the sentence or used when the subject of the sentence does something for their own benefit. It's reflexive in nature. We do this with English, in English with things like to himself or herself or for himself or herself. Even as he chose us for himself or to himself. This is so important. So important. Why? Because God chose us according to his purposes the idea here is that it's all up to him. Can I tell you once again why this is really good news? If your salvation were up to you, if my salvation were up to me for even one minute, we'd lose it. We'd lose it. We'd squirrel it away with sin. But he didn't Choose us based upon us. He didn't choose us based upon something in us. He didn't, if we understand him to be omniscient, either look down the corridors of time and learn something about us and then respond with his own choice. Because God doesn't learn nor does he respond. Not in that way. He chose us for his own purposes. According to his own purposes. In other words, he set a plan in place in love. That's the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. In love, he predestined us. This is such an interesting word. In Greek, it's the word pro It's a combination of two words. Pro meaning before and horizo, which is where we get our word horizon from. And what the word literally means is to set the destination on the horizon ahead of time. Predestined. The destination is set ahead of time. And what did he predestine us for? He predestined us for adoption. And what did he do it in? Did he do it in compulsion? Did he do it in frustration? No, he chose us for adoption to himself as sons in love. There should be no no doctrine more comforting to the church. God's plans are made and they will be established. No power can overcome. Charles Spurgeon said that there is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of his sovereignty. Because even when we don't understand what's going on in the world around us, we can be comforted by the fact that God is in control and that God is good. But but simultaneously, there is no doctrine more hated by our sinful nature. I think Pink got it absolutely right when he said that the world will allow God to sit anywhere but on his throne. The world will allow God to sit anywhere but on his throne. And in my sin, I want to do the exact same thing. But Psalm 103.19 reminds us that the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Nothing can remove him from his throne. Beloved, if that doesn't give you security, there is nothing that will. He is sovereign and he is good. Let me close with Romans chapter eight, verses uh, 31 through 39. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I love that. If God has not spared his son, what other good thing would he spare us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. How can Paul write with such surety? Because he was certain of the sovereign control of God. Heavenly Father, may we be certain of your sovereign control when we understand and when we don't. When we don't understand how you are still providentially and sovereignly in control even through the willful and sinful actions of people. When things don't go our way. When we're weary. Whatever other circumstances may come along in our lives, Lord. May we constantly remind ourselves that you are in control and that you are good. That nothing can separate us from your love because before the foundation of the world you took counsel in yourself and you set forth a plan to unite all things to yourself and you promised to yourself that you would redeem a people and offer them eternal life. And so may we rest sure in our salvation. May we experience the, the rest of the book of Hebrews that comes when we stop striving to attain things that you have already provided for us and are freed up to live, not not to earn salvation, but to respond to it. And may our response be pleasing to you, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to move now to uh, a time of communion together.